Hello, and welcome to the Be Brave podcast series. In this series, our host, Allison Pickens, Chief Operating Officer at Gainsight, interviews heroes from around our community, such as servant leaders who are paving the way for others through their action and mentorship, voyagers who have decided to take a leap of faith and help pave the way for others through their actions and decisions, and reformers who will share their stories of reformation both in their company and communities and provide useful tips on how you can face adversity head on. In this episode, Allison sits down with Layla Seka, former EVP at Salesforce, to discuss why it's everyone's responsibility to close the gap on equal pay. Now, let's get to the show. Layla, thank you so much for joining us on the Be Brave campaign. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks, Allison. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, well, I am a big admirer of yours. And on the Be Brave campaign, we're really looking to showcase people who have been role models, actually, whether intentionally or not, um, in being courageous at work and outside of work. And you're one of those people that I think of um, oh, when I think thanks, of bravery. Uh, so really excited to have you here. Um, we are here to chat about, I think, a few different uh, ways in which you've been brave. Um, one of the primary ones, I think, more recently being helping to spearhead the Equal Pay Initiative at Salesforce, um, which has had a lot of public recognition. Excited to dive into the de- details with you. Before we do that, would you mind just sharing with folks a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today? Sure. Um, so I grew up in Berkeley. My parents are immigrants. I'm an, my parents are immigrants, so I'm first generation. Um, I, I sort of stumbled into technology, luckily, after Peace Corps, and then got into being a product manager early, which is a great way to learn the business. Um, and then I just started moving up the ranks. I went to Salesforce 11 and a half years ago um, to work on the app exchange. It was about a year old, so really in its most nascent state and needed a lot of um, help and a lot of things put around it. So I worked really hard on that. And then I grew, you know, I started at Salesforce as a director um, and I left as an executive vice president. So it definitely was a great ride as far as a career growth. And over, I think, a 10-year period? Is that right? 11 and a half, but yeah, roughly 10. Whatever, whatever, roughly 10. Amazing run. As yeah. in how big was Salesforce when you joined? Um, it was around, we were just shy of 2,000 people, around 500 million in revenue. And now they're about 42,000 and 16 billion in revenue. So as far as being there, watching growth and scale and sort of the definition of SaaS as it stands today, we were really at the forefront of that. And I was lucky because I had a seat at the table for most of the time. That's incredible. Um, we could actually probably have a whole other discussion just about <laughs> the growth trajectory at Salesforce, how you manage through a growing organization sure. and all the different career changes it sounds like you made you know, along the way. Um, but I do want to dive into um, this other specific topic, which I think is really interesting and perhaps doesn't get as much um, conversation or visibility like in the tech community as it, as it could. Um, so um, I'd love to know what started to get you interested in this topic of equal pay at Salesforce? So I think my interest in it started well before Salesforce, right? So I told you I started in product. Um, there's just not a lot of women in product. There still, sadly, are not a lot of women in product. And there were less women in engineering at that time. So those were sort of the two functional groups I spent most of my time with at the early part of my career. And I had always had a sense 
you know, nothing concrete, but a sense that maybe the men were making more money than the women. Um, and then at Salesforce, as I progressed up and started hitting the executive ranks, like senior vice president and, and getting up there, it just did. The feeling got more acute. And, and it was an interesting moment because it was right around the time when Sheryl Sandberg wrote the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so awareness around the fact that there are not a lot of women anywhere started to grow at a relatively rapid pace. And Mark Benningoff, CEO of Salesforce, um, he was friends with Cheryl. He was very cognizant of this. So he had actually started a program. We have we had quarterly meetings, right? Quarterly management meetings. He had started a program that he called the Women's Surge because at one point he looked around his quarterly meetings and realized it was all white, 40-year-old, balding men. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I'm married to a white 40-year-old. So I, I like them, but we, we, love, them. we love them. But this yeah. is sort of the situation. So he had started a surge, which was essentially to look for high-potential women inside the organization that weren't necessarily, you know, getting as much recognition. I was lucky enough to be part of that initial surge. And I actually turned that from, you know, I got promoted. I got sort of the attention. It really worked for me. And at the same time, my good friend, Cindy, a similar thing happened to her. She got put in the program and she, I became the senior vice president of desk customer support. Um, application for the low end of the market and Cindy became the head of HR. So we both sort of moved into these broader roles. And then um, she and I started dialoguing quite a bit about, okay, so that's great. We got here. We sort of made it through. We were some of very few that did. What could we do to help others? And uh, that's where for me, equal pay became like a real thing. And I thought we should really pursue this. And I'll tell you, there was one, I had been talking about it with her for a long time, but there was one moment where I had been running desk and I had four direct reports. Two were men and two were women. And we had a killer year, you know, grew over 200%. It's crazy year. Um, and so time to give out bonus and stock and all of this type of stuff. So I went and fought hard. I got a lot. All of the people on my team had been tenured at Salesforce for a long time, over five years, each of them. So I got more than any of them had ever gotten. Right. It was just that type of scenario. So my assistant set up the meetings and it just happened to be that the women went first. And so I said to, you know, this woman, oh, here's your raise. Here's a great job. And she came up, oh, what a great year, Layla. It was so much fun. I love my job. And then I had the next woman. Right. And so I said, great job. Here's your thing. Oh, I love my job. Thank you so much, Layla. It's been such an amazing year. And then I had the first man and I told him and he said, that's great. I want more. Yeah. Wow. Look at that stark contrast. Right. And I was totally taken back and I was very much like, oh, you know, this is more he's ever gotten. And then I went in with my COO, who was the person I was really running the business with. And I told him and he said, I want more. And luckily he and I were close enough so that I sort of stopped our formal conversation. I was like, explain me what's going on to here. Like, why are you asking for more? And he said, I always ask for more. It doesn't matter what you say. Like, I always <laughs> ask for more. That's like what we were all taught. Negotiation strategy. Totally. But it was like someone like knocked me in the head because I thought back to every bonus and every promotion and every grant and everything. And all I'd ever said was thank you. And by the way, I know you to be a pretty assertive person, right? So it's not your person. It's not about your personality. No, right? it was yeah. sort of the way I was raised, yeah. Allison. Like my mother made it really clear to me that even if someone gives you a present you don't like, you say <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you know, yeah. like and you're appreciative. And so that you know, Cindy and I had been talking about equal pay. That event happened, and I was like, we got to do it. And and you know, I, I didn't realize how courageous we. 
were being. We were being very courageous. I know that now in hindsight. But at the time, it really just felt like the right thing to do. Like, of course. I mean, this is so crazy. How can the men not make the same amount of money as the, or the women not make the same amount of money as the men? Like, we're all, I work just as hard. I'm here just as long. I'm giving up just as much. Like, I yeah. don't understand. Yeah. Um, so we, she was like, okay, let's go. And so we put together a deck and we, and we sort of framed her proposal. And she had a one-on-one with Mark, our CEO. And she called him and said, I'm bringing Layla. And he's funny about this. He's like, yeah, I'd never had someone bring like backup to a one-on-one before. Right? <laughs> I was like, wasn't quite exactly. Um, but then we sat down with him and we said, I, I mean, I remember, I was like, the women aren't being paid the same as men. And he was like, no, that's not possible. That's not the kind of company we run. I would never, you get paid a lot. You know, he was doing things like that, which was funny. By, by the um, way, I, I read an article about this and it said actually that he admitted to saying he didn't think it was a problem yeah, at the beginning. It's totally. like public knowledge that he didn't think it was totally. a problem. And he was like, I don't, this is not the kind of company I built. And honestly, we are, we, they were not, we're not that kind of a company. Salesforce isn't, you know, philanthropy was at the core of how it started. From the get-go, I was attracted to Salesforce because they were building a different kind of company than the ones that existed. But he listened and Cindy said some smart, you know, she was like, listen, if we, we want to do an audit, but if we do an audit and we find a problem, we are legally obligated to fix the problem. It's yeah. not like you can shut the hood and run. Um, yeah. You're and, making the commitment up front, which yeah. probably a lot of people may not be willing to take that risk, right? Well, you know, what's the problem? Is it a hundred million dollar problem is it a one million dollar problem is it a 10 like we really didn't know right and so I mean this is where you got to love someone like Mark right because we talked for a long time and at the end he was like do the audit you know and and sort of like understanding and Cindy was the head of HR she outlined pretty clearly risks and things that might come about um so once he said that no one had ever done an audit like this before it wasn't common. There was no rule book for how to do this. So Cindy and her team, and you know, they really dug into this. We talked a lot of different ways to think about it, how to slice the data, geography, skill set, role, education. You know, it just goes on and on about how complicated this can be. But they did it and they found a problem, right? The first year they found about a $3 million problem. And there were some men that needed to be adjusted in that problem as well. Um, but what I found super interesting about, and we were applauded and, and it really did a great thing. It did exactly what I knew it was going to do. I remember saying to Mark, like, if you say equal pay, no one will be able to hide. Like, no one in this valley will be able to hide anymore. If you stand up, our company, our big company, big part of the city. um, And sure enough, it became true. Because all of a sudden thereafter, equal pay became part of the dialogue inside of Silicon Valley, which is pretty crazy because before then it wasn't. So it's pretty wild to think back to the fact that Cindy and I, and and people told us not to do it along the way, too. It was risky and, you know, maybe we shouldn't expose the company and all these types of things. But, um... It ended up really changing not only Salesforce, but sort of the way all of us approach how we think about compensation, which, in my opinion, like the world's not equal. It's just the way it is. It really mm-hmm. sucks. I, it makes me very angry a lot of the time. It's even worse if you're black, quite frankly. It's totally more hard to believe how difficult things are. But one thing I do know, and that is if wealth creation starts to happen inside of underrepresented groups, whether that be women or African-American people or Latinx people or whatever, that wealth creation starts to shift the way that the rules play out. So for me, you know, going for the money made a ton of sense. And it's math. There's nothing subjective about money, right? It's a math equation. And we all like math in Silicon Valley. So it became a lot easier to say, well, 
Does this does this discrepancy really make sense here? Yeah. I mean, Stanford, Berkeley, same, same, really, you know. It's like, a data problem at yeah. that point. Yeah. And so to, to be able to shift it away from that and really make that compelling argument was key. But the interesting thing was we did the audit the next year and we had another $3 million issue. And then we did it again. And there was a like two point something million dollar issue. There's something systemic here. Right? Yeah. Well, we bought a lot of companies. Candidly, Salesforce likes to buy companies. And when you buy companies, you buy their hiring practices and yeah. you buy their compensation systems and all these types of things. But I think for me, the thing that resonated so hard was um, we had done it and we sort of thought like, oh, my gosh, we did it. That's amazing. Like, And then it happened again. So the thing about equal pay is it's not just a one and done. Like you have to do it every year because the bias is so intrinsically baked into our society that even with the best intentions, it creeps back into the pay process. Totally. It's an incredible story. And there's so much richness to dig into. (laughs) So I have like this list of follow-up questions that I want to clear with you. Um, I'm intrigued, especially by um, your example of the four direct reports you had two were women, two were men, and they just approached this compensation conversation completely differently. I bet some people would say, well, um, the fact that the two men were very assertive and took initiative and showed some negotiation skills may be indicative of the idea that they are stronger performers and therefore perhaps they should deserve greater compensation. I've heard this, I don't personally believe it, but I've heard this argument from other folks. And I do think there is an perhaps unconscious belief in a lot of people that if you're a strong negotiator in compensation, you will be a stronger performer. Um, Clearly you don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. So Um, what's your take? I I don't Look, a lot of our behaviors are learned throughout our lives, right? And if you are judged differently the minute you walk in the room before you even open your mouth just by your gender, color of your skin, your appearance, your sexual identity, whatever that thing might be, you are not in a position that a, let's say, white man might be in to pound their fist, right? You're scared. You're scared you're going to lose your job. You're scared you've never made this much money before. You don't want to mess it up. You don't want to make your boss mad at you. You don't want any retaliation. You've sort of built in all of these things to protect you in a world where you are not considered necessarily equal to the dominating gender, if you will, and and race in this instance. So I don't agree with that. Right. And I really think what was, you know, I'm on the board of Girls Who Code and our CEO there has this uh, this term for girls, brave, not perfect. Right. And I think that fits really well with what you're doing here, too. There is something to be said for girls being taught to be perfect. Right. Perfect. You have to look perfect. You have to act perfect. You have to be polite. You have to be assertive, but not too assertive. All of these things sort of make it harder for us to stand up for ourselves at different points. And if you think about it in the professional world, compensation is probably the place you need to stand up for yourself the most, right? Um, and, and you will have great bosses that will do great stuff for you. But ultimately, the bottom line is to get as much for the company for as little as possible. Yes. That's how we've all been trained. I think that's changing some where you find companies that are really open with their salary bands and like sort of approaching things in different ways. Um, but in general, it's going to take a while for the the systematic parts of this to shift. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's always hard to sort of speak on behalf of women. So I won't try to do that, but I'll just speak from my own personal experience instead of data points I've had. Um, I've noticed in my own community of female friends that I have, we tend not to talk about money very often. 
I don't know how much my friends make. They don't know how much I make. Um, and honestly, a part of me would feel a little bit awkward um, asking them about how much they made. Um, no, I think that's changing. Actually, um, last week we were talking about it. I was at a tech conference and actually had a few conversations with women about their financial aspirations and um, how they were thinking about the compensation potential of you know different jobs that they could pursue. But it was particularly notable in my mind because it felt unusual for me and it, I find it to be um, a trend. I know, however, many of the men in my life have very intense and common, frequent conversations with um, other men in their lives about how much they make. And so um, I wonder if that results, if, if this is a general trend, again, I'm not sure if it's true, but just speaking from personal experience, I wonder if um, that could potentially result in women not being aware that they're making less money um, than they could be, where, whereas perhaps men have a greater awareness of like- Absolutely. Absolutely. Did you guys notice that at all? And it's like some of the analysis. I mean, I think that I think that some of that did come. I think in general, it's sort of considered gauche among women to really like, you know, needle down to exactly what you make to some degree. Whereas the men, it's more like a contest. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like sort of like a let me show you or something like that. I actually act the other way. I've been very unapologetic about how much money I want and that like, you know, when I was a little girl, people would ask what I wanted to be and I would say rich. Like, <laughs> yeah. Not super proud of that all the time, but these were like sort of, so I think for me, I think I was just kind of a strange bird in lots of instances. And that's how it became clear to me too, that the men were maybe even before my four direct reports, like that the men were making more money because we would be in the coffee room and they'd be like, my Tesla costs this and my Tesla costs that and on and on and on. And I'm sitting there going, oh, I can't buy a Tesla. I mean, I could, but that'd be so stupid. <laughs> Why would I buy such an expensive car? It'd be like a lot of my money. I drive a Chevy. I love it. Like, yeah. You know, but like I just, at the time it, it was these little, it was almost those competitive angles that they were playing. that gave me the sense like, Hmm, that feels weird. Cause we have basically the same job. In fact, my job's probably bigger than your job. I run more revenue than you. I have more direct reports. I'm more like, you know, and, and, and so I think it's interesting. I think that women need to talk about money more, but they have to do it in a way that they're comfortable with. And it has to sort of be organic. Like I, I'm still, I'm still not comfortable necessarily being, I made this much money. I made that much money. Right. I think that's kind of weird, but I will ask people like, how much money do you make? And then I will say, no, you need to go ask for more money. Right. Yeah, like I will yeah. do that with people, you know, especially people that are sort of asking me for advice or something sort of like try, trying to give them a gauge because it is really a mystery. Right. You know, and that, that I think, and I, and for some reason it doesn't feel like as much of a mystery with the men and I'm not quite sure why that is. Maybe yeah. it's to your point because they're dialogue about, they dialogue about it more. Yeah. But, you know, th this is also very true in venture. A lot of the men I know do venture on the side. They are operating executives and they invest on the side. And um, I got really angry about that a couple of years ago because I was like, well, why aren't you know, my operating executive friends went into venture and then would call the men to invest? And I got really mad about that. And I was like, why aren't you calling me? And then they started calling me and that became a very lucrative sort of another way to, to think about how one can play in the compensation game in Silicon Valley beyond just yeah. their operating role. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I've never, um, even when I was like a little kid, I, I might be a little bit different from you in that, like 
money was never something that was really top of mind for me. Actually, my brother was completely different from the time he was 10. He was like wheeling and dealing mixtapes that he had made to try to like turn his allowance of $5 into 10, you know, on, on any, in an even week. Um, so, uh, but you know, I, I've never been someone who's all that focused on money. Um, at the same time, fairness is really important to me. So I really want to make sure that if I'm doing a great job and I'm in a particular role, I am paid, you know, at least in line with market or, you know, um, perhaps at the top of the market, depending on like how I'm contributing. It, it strikes me how, you know, if we, if we don't necessarily want to create a society where everyone's thinking about money all the time and like measuring themselves on money, like then really what we've got to do is put systems in place so that people are, automatically treated fairly and don't have to think about money perhaps as much. Um, now it's clear that you guys put in place probably a number of process improvements and systems at Salesforce to try to just make totally. it automatic. What, what were the focus areas that you had? I mean, I think we, you know, we sort of focused on there was equal pay, equal opportunity. So also like looking for roles and looking for non-traditional people to fill those roles, right? Like I think that's another component. Part of moving up in the pay scale is getting different opportunities inside of the organization that allow you to get more visibility or a different type of visibility or to showcase different talents. So I think that, you know, there was the equal pay was huge, this equal work, and then sort of a notion, and this is a little bit more sort of intrinsic, but you should be able to bring your whole self to work, right? Maybe not in every instance, but if you identify a certain way, if you feel a certain way, if you want to express yourself in a certain way, that should be acceptable as long as it's not harming anyone else in the workplace. So I think that, you know, we, we sort of, after we did equal pay for about a year and then thereafter we created the office of equality and we hired Tony Profit, first chief equality officer ever wow. in the Bay Area, you know, ever, ever. I'd never even heard of such a thing before. Yeah. Um, and now everyone has one, which is another sort of first that markets the credit for it. But once that came into being, we focused a lot of energy on employee resource groups because you want to, you want to focus on where people are self-organizing and identifying in a certain way. And then as those voices voices joined together, you can really articulate the issues that a certain group of people may face. Like we had a group called Ability Force, and that was really people that were dealing with disabilities, whether they were, you know, whether you could see them or not, right? And I'm super dyslexic, always have been, right? So at one point we did a talk on dyslexia in the workplace and how my brain works differently than everyone else's brain. And if yeah. I invert numbers, it doesn't mean I don't know the numbers. It yeah. means that I inverted them, right? Like, And so sort of building awareness and empathy and sort of understanding for all the different ways that everyone brings themselves to work and why if you can foster an environment where more of those types of people feel like they can contribute and voice you just build better things you just do because it's not one person that uses stuff and honestly the funny thing about a lot of the software we build an enterprise is the person that buys it is rarely the person that uses it you know yeah yeah and so you're you're you're, you're, you're like selling to a buyer but the user is a different person right the user might be like me a chubby 45 year old mom right <laughs> like who has a lot of things going on and wants the software to do things and you know, I, I just don't i think that you, you get a bigger consciousness about how many different people what you build may like touch yes when you have other people on the team that can bring that perspective absolutely and on the recruiting side i think this is where people are especially aggressive in negotiating um, yeah. higher pay, right? And especially when you really want someone to join, you might even be desperate for them to join. It might be hard to push back and say, well, we've got these 
compensation bans at our company. In the spirit of fairness, we can't pay you that much. Therefore, maybe you should take that other job offer, right? Like that can feel hard. So um, if it is true that, you know, men and maybe particularly white men are like negotiating more effectively for salary increases from the beginning, how are you correcting for that? Um, I mean, I think that's hard. I think that you do have to set some restraints, right? I mean, you have to sort of say, these are the bands and we live within the bands. And sometimes you make exceptions outside of the band, but then you need to have a justifiable answer for that exception, right? There are exceptions. If you are like the only person in the world that has a PhD in Uga Booga and you're the only one that can do it, well, you're probably going to be at a premium that maybe, you know, I won't stand next to in the same light, right? But you have to be really sure about that. And again, I, you know, I, I like the trend companies are taking where they're exposing their salary information to their employees. It is risky and scary yeah. and super strange and it's a little uncomfortable, um, but it really like alleviates so much anxiety because the amount of time people worry about is Allison making $5 more than me? Yeah. Well, I, I worked on Saturday and Allison did. And going back to those feelings that yeah. you have right at the start, like and it, it just like foster camaraderie, right? And, and unfortunately, among women, because there are so few of us actually in senior operating roles, although it's changing, but there still are quite not, not nearly as many as there are men. Um, I think that's also an important moment there too, because it can get oddly competitive too. Like what, you know, woman to woman, like I try not to do that. If I'm competing, I'm normally competing with the men. I'm like, well, why did, you know, Mike get that and I didn't get that or, you know, like, and trying to articulate those differences to better understand it. But the comp is complicated and companies tend to be really restrictive about the data they'll share. Yeah. Right. And so it's evolving slowly, but all the answers are not clear right now. Yeah. Now, this example we're talking about um, is a case study at a particular company, Salesforce, where you had a leader who really cared, listened to smart people in his company and decided to be a visionary in the industry. Um, hopefully he inspires many other CEOs to pick up the mantle. Um, but at the same time, you know, it seems hard to believe that like every company is going to adopt sort of these best in pra practice, best practice, equal pay um, policies. So I'm wondering, do you think there should be some sort of policy change yes. at like the national level? Yes. State level? I think that the UK yeah. and Iceland have done some very interesting things with making companies report their pay across their genders and across different ethnicities and all of these types of things. The United Kingdom and Iceland have done this. I firmly believe we need to sort of hold companies accountable. You know, the way we hold companies, public companies accountable with the SEC as far as regulating how they manage their stock, I sort of feel at the very least public companies should be held accountable when it comes to pay. And they should have to report to the government. And when inequities start showing up, the government should be able to invoke policy in some way. I mean, you have to, the wealth creation going on, you know, I'll speak specifically about the Bay Area. This is where I grew up. It's like my hometown, sort of big hometown. But um, the wealth creation going on here is insane. Right. And the companies that are benefiting from this are doing even better. Their their practices should be held. You know, we should hold them accountable and make sure that they're doing the right thing by their employees, especially employees that are not in the majority. Yeah. I know there's also a movement now to ensure that boards of directors at public companies and otherwise are diverse. Yeah. So that Some of these issues get greater attention at the governance level. And, you know, I'm curious to know if you have a perspective on this. It seems as though the compensation committees within boards actually 
should be raising the questions of equal pay and what does the data look like? Do we have policies to ensure internally that people are paid well? And I think they are. I mean, I think more, you know, I'm hearing more and more about different software solutions that are coming online to pay people, like sort of help companies do analysis around what's going on inside of their internal payment. And I do, you know, I know a number of people on a number of boards and they call me and they want to talk about this, right? They want to understand how they can help the company move toward a place where they have some transparency around their pay and what's going on with how they keep that equal. I mean, this is the future. Like if a company is not thinking about the day when this topic is going to be brought to them, they are, they have their head in the sand, right? This is, this is an important piece in how women start moving more like fluidly into the workplace. We've all done well. We've all had to fight hard to get to the places we're at as well, you know, and everyone does to some degree, the men as well. But um, the true, true parity is only going to come when the women make the same amount of money and can wield the same power with that. You know, the economic power allows you to do a lot of interesting things. It allows you to stand up for equal pay or to try to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed or to do a number of different things. And the more women that have that type of independence, the more we'll see shifts in society about how we're valued. Super interesting. So shifting gears a bit, you've gotten involved in Girls Who Code. Um, I'd love to learn a little bit more about that organization and um, what what you do for them. Sure. So I joined the board of directors. Um, the reason I joined Girls Who Code is because a lot of these conversations we're having, it's very hard to know how to start, right? Even at Salesforce, like how to, once Mark said go, Cindy and I were like, how do you audit the pay, right? Like, um, so what I like about Girls Who Code, it's an organization really focusing on girls in elementary school and now moving up to middle and high school. And it creates coding programs. So after school programs, their teachers inside of their schools sort of run these clubs and the girls create coding projects, open source projects, different types of things. And then at the end of the semester, they present these and, you know, they get awards and all these accolades. But what it's really doing is it's sort of demystifying how girls approach technology, right? And and the honest truth is like, I have two little boys and they can't get enough. They want to code everything. They want to be in the computer all the time. And then my niece is like, ugh boring. And I'm like, no, 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 not boring. She's like, I want to be a doctor. I'm like, exactly. You need to learn how to code. This is not just for engineers anymore. This is like how the world's going to work. And it would be like not knowing math or not knowing how to speak English. It would be a huge, it's a huge detriment not to have this. So I've always said, you know, I grew up in product and engineering. I always said, if I could code, I would have been unstoppable. Because at a certain point, I have to trust my engineering counterpart. And that's a good thing too. But there is a, I can't go check her work. I can't go dig into her code and see. So with Girls Who Code, we're sort of giving girls, young girls, confidence that they can actually pursue this. And they're seeing, I mean, 15 times more Girls Who Code college graduates major in CS than the national average. So like it is, I like it because it's working. And I there are a lot of people that want to activate and do stuff about this problem, but then they hit all of the walls, of which there are so many, and they sort of throw their hands up like, what can I do? Right. I'm just one person. And then Girls Who Code sort of turns that because one person, one teacher, one girl in a school, one principal can shift the way a whole, you know, bunch of girls think about how they might think about their professional life or even manage their house, whatever. It doesn't always have to be a job either. There's but a cascading effect. Proficiency. It's like proficiency. It's like not. Why would you not teach someone math? Like math is everything, right? Yeah. This is coding is the new math. <laughs> I love it. Um, Layla, one final question for you. I'm curious to know, how will you be brave this year? 
Well, I was brave this year. I left my job, which was really brave for me. Yeah, I left Salesforce after 11 and a half years. It was a great run. I had a great time. Um, but I had this feeling I wanted to try something different, right? And you only get one run at life. And I thought, well, I want to see what's going to happen. So that's been really brave. What I'm doing with Girls Who Code is pretty brave. And then, you know, Allison, I try to live a pretty brave life. I don't always achieve it, but I'm, I'm one of those take the hill kind of people. Like I'll run at anything. So without a full operating role for at least a little bit of time, there's lots of interesting, fun things to think about. I love it. Brave, not perfect. Brave, not perfect is a great way to think about it. I love that. I'm going to be thinking about that all day. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you, Allison. You're awesome. And talk about someone brave. Look at you. (laughs) I'm super proud of you. Trying to live up to the example. Oh, you're doing pretty well. (laughs) You're lovely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Be Brave series. If you want to hear more stories from influential heroes from around our community, be sure to check out www.bebravetogether.com. Until next time, this has been the Be Brave podcast series with your host, Allison Pickens. See you on the next one.